Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. After week, the Cape Crusader copes with the tricky traps of vicious villains. Will the time arrive when the Cape crime fighters come too close to the jaws of death? Holy metronome! What a fate! Punched in the player piano rolls. Watch Batman in color on ABC. Kind of a sick school is this? Uh oh, don't go! The plane! Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend! I love to smell a great pump in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Up your nose when you have the phone. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another amazing episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. As we've discussed on the show in the past, comic books and superheroes are a part of our pop culture that have never disappeared from our collective zeitgeist. Batman first appeared in 1939 in Detective Comics and continues to be hugely popular 81 years later. On January 12, 1966, the ABC network premiered a TV series that would not only catapult the character of Batman into the mainstream pop culture, but also create living legends out of its two stars, Adam West and Burt Ward. Today, we've got a special guest on our show that is one of those living legends, 
He's not going to just discuss the Batman TV series, but also his amazing career and causes that he works for. If you've never seen the Batman show, I highly recommend that you do immediately. I just found as of this recording that it's on the Roku channel, but you have to search for it. And please share this show with younger people, especially kids who will thoroughly enjoy it as will you. So sit back and prepare to enjoy an interview with a living legend of our pop culture. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Whoa, whoa! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now! Okay, folks, today I am once again joined by podcaster Justin Cooper. Welcome back, Justin. Thanks for having me, Rudg. Awesome, awesome. Are you excited as I am about today's guest? You know I am, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, me too. So let's get right to it. He's a karate expert, and at age 13, he pitched four no-hit, no-run games in the Los Angeles Municipal Baseball League. The same year, he won first place in his high school decathlon. He was in Ripley's Believe It or Not as the world's youngest professional ice skater at the age of two. Not only is he a black belt in karate, an all-around athlete, proficient in wrestling, track, tennis, golf, and an expert in skin diving, he also has a sharp intellect, playing first board in chess for Beverly Hills High School, achieving the top 3% in the U.S. in math and science tests at UCLA, and is the world's fastest reader, clocking in at 30,000 words per minute with 90% comprehension, as well as being a proficient pianist. At age 19, he obtained a license to sell real estate in California, but it was his role as Robin the Boy Wonder, sidekick to master crime fighter Batman in the 1966 TV series of the same name, that really propelled him into the stratosphere as a teen idol. From there, he's created several companies, including Entertainment Management Corp., in which he managed such talent as Henry Winkler, Paul Michael Glazer, and Mark Hamill, as well as bands like The Silvers and Ario Speedwagon. Not only has he played a hero on screen, but he's also a hero in real life, who has rescued countless dogs with his company Gentle Giants Rescue and Adoptions, a non-profit charity created by him and his wife Tracy. Gentle Giants has rescued and adopted more than 15,500 giant breeds and small breed dogs during their 22 years of operation. It is the world's largest big dog rescue. On top of that, he's created Gentle Giant's dog food, which has been proven to double the life of a large dog. And he's just created Gentle Giant's cat food, both of which are available in over 1,800 Walmart stores nationwide, 250 stores in Canada, as well as 1,100 Target stores in the U.S. He's recently guest starred on the CW Network's crossover episode with The Arrow, The Flash, Batwoman, Black Lightning, and Supergirl to help solve the crisis on infinite Earths. He was given the Icon Award on Oscar night 2018 from the Roger Neal Style Hollywood Oscar Viewing Dinner and received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on January 9, 2020. His autobiography titled Boy Wonder, My Life in Tights documents all the dirty laundry and secret behind-the-scenes trysts in Wayne Manor and the Batcave. He can still be seen on television on Batman, which is on MeTV and other channels, and is still broadcast worldwide to this day. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the man who has gone from caped crusader to canine crusader, the legendary and iconic Mr. Burt Ward. Hello, citizens! 
<laughs> oh man, it's so awesome to have you over here. Thank you for coming on the show. It's great. You know, I I, I got to say that I, I imagine that there's just tons and tons of people that have fond memories of watching you on TV as I did. So let, let's start from the beginning. What prompted you to get into acting? You were in Summerstock three years before Batman, right? Right. Well, um, well, I tell you what's interesting. It's a kind of a combination of things. As a kid growing up, I was um, at three years of age. I wanted to be Superboy. Now, where I lived, they didn't have Batman comic books. So what they had was Superman comic books and Superboy. So uh, as a three-year-old, I wanted to be like Superboy. And, and believe it or not, as I was growing up, you know, I thought about all of this and the tremendous daring do's and, uh, and fantastic things that crime fighters could do. So on one hand, I had that interest. Secondarily, when I graduated high school, I had an opportunity to apprentice at Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Um, the Playhouse is very famous for um, introducing shows that just before they go on Broadway where they test them out and see how they play in front of audiences. And I uh, worked as uh, an intern doing uh, set building sets and all this stuff for a summer stock for some great actors and actresses that were appearing at that Playhouse during the summer. So I, I learned a lot about that. And I decided that I thought, geez, I would like very much to be an actor. So I, I studied professionally with one of the top coaches in Hollywood. And I also studied at UCLA where I was attending the, the university there. And it was in my third year at, uh, at UCLA when uh, I uh, sold a house. I, was, <laughs> I became the youngest, actually at 18, got my license youngest person in California to get the real estate license. My father was a top broker at that time. Wow. And uh, I was literally what they call sitting on a house where, you know, on weekends, people come and look at open houses and, you know, it's the real estate people usually try to have somebody there to answer any questions or stuff. And I, but one of the people that came was a very prominent film producer. And I got to talking to him and told him I wanted to be an actor. And I kind of spontaneously ask him if he would let me, if I would, you know, let me do a scene for him right there. And he, and I did. And he said, gee, you know, you're really pretty talented. You know, he says, I, I can send you to an agent. And I said, Oh, that would be fantastic. And it, you know, I contacted this agent, went to see them. And then all I got my first taste of Hollywood when the agent said to me, I can't get work for the actors I've got. I would never take a new actor. The only reason <laughs> I would take you is because this producer sent you to me and I'm obligated to do it. So don't expect to work for a year. And if you do get a job, it'll be a one-liner. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, I left there and um, I, uh, it was a couple of weeks later, I got a call from someone in his office and they said, there's uh, something going on over at 20th Century Fox. And, uh, you know, we'd like you to, uh, to interview for it. And I said, oh, well, what is it? And they said, oh, I don't know. The lady said, just go over there. We got an appointment at 4.30 in the afternoon. I said, okay. And so the next day I went over to 20th Century Fox and they let me on and they said, here, you got to go to this bungalow. And I went to that bungalow and I met this casting director and he, he never said anything. You know, he just asked me some questions about me. And I answered the questions and he said, would you like to meet the executive producer? Well, I said, sure. I mean, I figured everybody got to meet the executive producer, but that actually is not true, but I didn't know that. So um, I then uh, went to another bungalow where uh, I met the uh, executive producer, maybe because I hadn't been kicked around in Hollywood. 
And I was kind of just like, you know, a free spirit. I walked in and I said, hello, sir. And I shook his hand, you know, uh, aggressively, but very nicely. And I think he was taken aback by the fact that I, you know, didn't come in, you know, in fear or something because <laughs> he's his <laughs> executive producer. And he looked at me and he said, uh, you're kind of big for this part. And I and I think pretty quickly on my feet. I said, well, I promise you, sir, I won't grow anymore. And he laughed. I mean, like, how are you going to stop from growing? Right. And he said, would you like to do a screen test? I said, sure. Again, I figured, you know, everybody got to do a screen test. Well, that's not true either, but I didn't know. So I still had no idea what the part was for. And it was a couple of weeks later, I went back to 20th Century Fox. And uh, the first thing I did, which is actually you can see on uh, on on in the Internet, was my uh, they recorded me doing some uh, actually some judo with a friend of mine, taking some falls. And I broke a board with my hand. At that time, it was a brown belt in karate, later became black belt. And then they said, OK, well, we have a, a scene to do with another actor. Why don't you go over and run your lines with him? They handed me a single sheet of paper. And on the paper, all it had was a couple of paragraphs. But the paragraphs didn't have the name of the show, didn't have really the name, full name of the characters. It just was a paragraph that said Bruce with some dialogue and then Dick with some dialogue. Bruce and Dick didn't say Dick Grayson or Bruce Wayne, just right. Bruce and Dick. And uh, they said, okay, you're going to read the part of Dick. And I said, okay, and here I want you to, we want you to meet this actor. His name is Adam West. So I sat down to, next to Adam and, uh, and he and I started talking. And within five minutes, the two of us were laughing. And we never stopped laughing for more than 50 years. I mean, we became like instant friends. It, he, he had such a wild, crazy sense of humor. And it, I just, you know, we, we just got along great. You know, it's one of those things. Not everybody gets along, but he was just, a, and I just understood his humor and very, very smart guy. And um, so anyway, so then we, we did this dialogue together. Again, nothing, nobody said what this was for. Just dialogue, Bruce and Dick. So afterwards, they said, okay, great, we're done with that. And I said, well, thank you, and nice to meet you all. And I started to leave, and they said, no, no, wait a minute. No, no, we're not done with you yet. Actually, um, we want you to go over on the other side of that sound stage. There's a dressing room there, and we've got a couple of wardrobe men. They're going to help you get dressed. I said, well, thank you very much, but I'm perfectly capable of dressing myself. They said, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, you don't know. No, no. You just go over there and you get in that dressing room. You'll see that you're going to need some help. I said, well, all right, but I've never needed any help up until now. So I walk across this giant soundstage. I mean, it's like walking two blocks. And I get over there and I go into the dressing room. And sure enough, there's a couple of guys there. And they have this, it looks like a giant couch. I mean, it's got to be like 12 feet long. It's just huge. And on this couch is all this stuff, all of this stuff. And I said to them, am I going to put some of this on? They said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? <laughs> so these guys helped me get dressed in the most uncomfortable thing I ever wore in my entire life. Never in my entire life have I ever been so uncomfortable. Everything itched or hurt or pinched. There was not <laughs> any peace in my life. None. Zero. <laughs> I mean, for example, the mask, the, the you know, the, the way the mask was, it, it touched my eye, eyelashes and, you know, it's irritating your eyelashes. It's hard to, to look and to focus and stuff. And of course, because of that mask, you couldn't see down. <laughs> you could only oh, see yeah. straight ahead. So I nearly yeah. broke my neck coming out of the trailer oh, and God. then the tights, you know, pull the hair on my leg and 
they pinched in uncomfortable places and the wool vest itched my chest and the, the shoes were too tight. And, oh, just, it was horrendous. And as I was, I finally got dressed and I was leaving the, the dressing room. I, you know, I, I guess in my life, I've always had a positive take on things, you know, where you kind of like to make the best of it. And I remember turning to these two wardrobe guys. I said, look, the, the, the good news here is that after another 15 or 20 minutes, I'll never have to wear this costume again. <laughs> Famous last words, right? So now, then I go to the set and then I see Adam, Adam West, and in this co- and his costume, I, again, nobody said Batman. And if they, even if they'd said it, I never heard of that comic book. I mean, I just never heard where I grew up, never heard of it. And I didn't know, I, I still didn't know this was superheroes. I thought maybe this is some Shakespearean piece or something. So anyway, I did, I did the dialogue and stuff like that. And, and then I left. And I guess over the next six weeks, after about two weeks, I started getting phone calls from the studio, you know, once or twice a week saying things like, oh, what is your shoe size? Oh, well, seven and a half. And what's your hat size? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a hat. Well, go get your head measured. Well, where do I go to get my head measured? (laughs) I don't know these things, right? So anyway, after six weeks, I get a call from these same agents. And and the the phone call was from a secretary said, well, we want you to come in and sign contracts. I said, great. Now I'm going to be formally represented by this agency because they they didn't sign anything before, you know? And I wanted to be able to officially say I have some theatrical and television agents. So I went there to sign the contracts. And when I sat down and I looked at these giant thick contracts, the first thing I saw was 20th Century Fox at the top of the contract. I said, what's this? I said, I thought, I'm, aren't I signing agency contracts? And they said, oh, no, no, no. This is your studio contract. I said, you mean I got the part? They said, you didn't know? I said, no, <laughs> nobody told me. Well, it turned out that the agents thought the studio told me I had the role and the studio thought the agents told me I had the role. So four of the last six weeks I had the role. I had no idea. And I was still wondering (laughs) if I was going to get the role. And then when I was called in again, now that to go into the studio and I met with the executive producer again, he was very nice. His name was William Dozier. And he said, Bert, would you like to know why we selected you? And I said, yes, sir, I, I would. He said, well, we interviewed over 1,100 young actors wow. from all across the country. A lot of people we saw, a lot of people. And he said, the reason we picked you is because in our minds, forgetting television, forgetting it, if there really was a Robin, I mean, like the real thing, we think you personally would be it. So we don't want you to, quote, act. We want you to be yourself because what you are is in our minds, Robin, you are Robin. You just be yourself and be enthusiastic. Well, for me, being enthusiastic is like zero effort, right? It's just the opposite. Calming down is, is the hardest part. So that's what I did for 120 episodes. And when I would work with Adam, the two of us got along so well, we had, I don't know how to say it. It's a chemistry of where people just click So no matter how he said his lines, I reacted appropriately with the way I said my lines. And and of course, if you remember the series, 
Adams would sometimes speak very slowly. Well, I didn't understand why he did that at first. I thought that was the character he was providing, you know, but it turns out that he had a much more sinister reason. You see, he calculated that this was a 30 minute show, each one of these episodes. And if he talked really slowly, he could occupy most of that 30 minutes of him talking. (laughs) And he also realized that the more he talked, the less time there was for anybody else to talk or do anything. (laughs) So he would have these lines and I I mean, he would have paragraphs, right? And I would have like a line like, you're right, Batman, or thank you, Batman. Okay. And, and so he would do this thing where he'd say, you know, he, he would do, do his line and it's like going on and on. They say, Adam, you got to speed it up. I mean, there's only a 30 minute show. Right? <laughs> and he would do his line and then it would come to my line, right? Where I was going to say, you're right, Batman. And I would say, you're, and I start to say, right. And he says, yes, Robin. <laughs> very slow talking to hold that camera then we, we would do these scenes where we has a two shot you know there's two people right in, in front of the camera they they are catching both of you trying to you know you're having a conversation well during that conversation we would be having he would often turn and walk right up to the camera filling his face with that camera, in fact, filling so much that you could only see from his nose to his chin. And they say, Adam, cut, cut. We can't do this, Adam. This is a two shot. And so he says, I had to do it. Well, Adam, why did you have to do it? Well, because I was motivated. Well, go motivate yourself back into that two shot. And, 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 you know, <laughs> They're all, and and then each week we'd have a different director. So, you know, the first couple of shots or half of the first day, he'd be tricking that director and doing this. And then they finally, they put their, Adam, no more. Back there, (laughs) talk with Bert, let him do his lines. He's only got three words. You're right, Batman. You're cutting him off after the first word. Let him have his other two words. Please, Adam, you know. (laughs) That's amazing. But we, I, I still loved him. You can't help but love this guy. He was so funny. We had such fun together. And, and you know, we worked terrible long hours. And yet, believe it or not, we had such fun that, and we had such a similar idea about life and everything that uh, on weekends, once in a while, we'd go out and play tennis. And it was funny because obviously we're in tennis clothes and everything. And we'd be playing tennis and people, and on, a, on a public court, actually. And people would come out to, to the next court and, and, you know, they'd be playing tennis and then they'd stop and somebody would look a little closer. And then somebody would say, oh, my God, it's <laughs> Batman and Robin playing tennis. You know, because people, unless you know that somebody's going to be there, you know, most people are in their own worlds. Right, right. right. I mean, you're all kind of doing your own thing. And and so anyway, it, we just had a great time. It was a wonderful show. Um, very dangerous. I got hurt a lot. Um, the the things they, the safety protocols today were not in place then, uh, but in any event, it was it was a lot of fun. Other than the costume, and look what it did! It became the number one and number two show in the entire world. Right, right. And wasn't there a Catholic group that uh, didn't like Robin's costume, and you try to adjust it, but you could just couldn't appease them? Well, yeah. Everybody, you know, it's funny when something is successful. It's like everybody wants to get involved to some extent. You, you know what I mean? Right. Everybody wants to get involved. And um, this uh, this uh, Catholic Legion of Decency had a complaint about the way that um, 
I fit in my tights. Well, I mean, obviously man is not built for tights, right? Right. Uh, so uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff, all of that. And, and it, it was, it created a big ruckus for a while, but uh, it finally, it, you know, it, it calmed down a lot, but everybody had to put their two cents in. I mean, there were, there were people um, like psychologists trying to figure out what is the true meaning of the relationship of Batman and Robin. And I mean, just all this stuff, everybody wanted to be involved because it was so incredibly successful. It was number one and number two in the entire world. Right, right. And, you know, one thing I love about it, and watching it as a kid, of course, I, I enjoyed it. And I do remember my dad telling me that when it first came on, he was disappointed because it was tongue-in-cheek and he thought it was going to be serious. But I, I still loved it, and I, I still love it now. And what I love about watching it now as an adult is, you know, the, the humor is on so many different levels. There's a lot of, you know, grown-up humor, double entendre that you just don't notice as a kid. I mean, even something as simple as, I think the commissioner on one episode says, oh, he's got bats in his belfry, and Adam West just shudders. You know, <laughs> like simple <laughs> jokes like oh, that. Oh, no, we had such great lines. Listen, there was a, there was a, there was a wonderful, um, some dialogue in the Batman movie where uh, we're in Commissioner Gordon's office as Batman and Robin, and Commissioner Gordon says to Batman, he says, Batman, you know, he says, the thought of these four villains that, I mean, any one of them, the Riddler, the Catwoman, the Joker, the Penguin could wreak havoc on Gotham City. But the thought of having them all combined together, what do you think they have in mind? And very stoically, Batman says, I think their minimum objective is the entire world. <laughs> minimum awesome. objective, right? That's awesome. <laughs> and it was that kind of dialogue we had. And 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 honestly, you know, we, we played it on so many different levels. And and one of the reasons that Batman was such a hit is with because it appealed to a very broad audience for children. I mean, it was the ultimate hero worship. I oh, mean, yeah. who wouldn't want to ride in that Batmobile racing through the city, climbing walls, fighting heinous villains, rescuing people. I mean, it was like the total fantasy. And there were kids that were running around with uh, uh, bath towels held together with the clothespins <laughs> around their neck, <laughs> yep. jumping off their couches, wanting to be Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah. And then you had yeah. the, the older people, the people that had read the comic book. It was the nostalgia of seeing that comic book being brought to life. Right. And then at the time, now this is the 60s, when... And I don't think you guys were around, but in the 60s, all the young people, the teenagers, the college kids, nobody wanted to be inside watching television. I mean, that was the squarest thing. That would be the worst <laughs> thing you could be caught doing is watching television. Everybody wanted to be out cruising on a Friday night through these uh, outdoor restaurants, you know, drive-ins and trying to pick up girls and stuff. So, I mean, it, it, but, but Batman was so cool to these kids. And, and teenagers and college kids. And, and because of the double meanings that we had, in other words, we took dialogue that was written funny, played straight for kids, you know, worked out great for the adults because of the nostalgia of the comic book. But more than just the dialogue was the style and the innuendo that Adam right. and I brought to it. We, you know, we used to say that we put on our tights to put on the world. In fact, we were the <laughs> only superheroes that wore our underwear on the outside of our clothes. Okay. 
So we we so therefore, whenever we had a chance, there were suggested meetings. You you, you understand? Yeah. And 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 stuff. And these college kids. I mean, I heard that you know, and from many that would tell us that on a Tuesday or Thursday night, they would have to get into that cafeteria or wherever they were going to have that television and an hour and a half early to get a seat to be able to watch oh, our wow. show for 30 wow. minutes that far ahead of time. So it was, it was tremendous. Everybody loved it. Something for everybody. That's amazing. And um, Justin and I would, were talking before you came on the show and um, Justin, you had mentioned about the, the line, the holy lines. Yeah. Um, in terms of this one, I had looked up just if they had an estimate of how many times you actually said it. And uh, they're saying that there's uh, 378 times on camera over the course of the entire series in the movie. Uh, well, actually, the, the the series only because the movie oh. put it over 400. Oh, it did? Okay. <laughs> it did, yeah. It did put it over 400. And, and for the most part, those were written for me. But oh. because... There were 32 writers on Batman, and the reason why you had to have 32 writers, just to write a 30-minute show, I mean, it takes weeks, you know? Right. And when you're churning them out every week, right? <laughs> Two episodes a week, it took a lot of writers. And not all of the writers had that Batman style downright. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Lorenzo Semple, which was the, uh, the who wrote the pilot and he had that great sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, he nailed it. Uh, another gentleman named Stanley Ralph Ross, who ended up yep. editing my book, Boy Wonder, My Life in Tights. And he created Wonder Woman, the TV series. He had a fan. He wrote 32, 30 some odd episodes of Batman. And he he was amazing as well. But some of the writers didn't have the right stuff. So they allowed me to change things as long as it was appropriate to the situation. You, you see what I'm saying? Right. And it, it worked. And, and, you know, I'll tell you what is something really interesting. I've watched other filmmaking with actors where the director said, well, can you say the line this way? Or can you try to, you know, try to get this to the other actor to do this or that? It, in, in other words, really directing them. Okay. Right. You know that on our series, Adam and I were never directed. Not once. Huh. And um, so, I mean, they would say, for example, now you're in the Batmobile in the scene, right? Or you're in front of the Bat computers is the way the script is written. But in terms of how to say the lines, attitude, all of that, they never, ever said anything. And, and I'll tell you the reason why. There were several reasons. Number one, the show was so complex to make with all the effects that instead of having a 30-person crew, they had an 80-person crew. Wow. And with 80 people paid astronomical amount of money to make this <laughs> show, they still couldn't hardly get anything to work. I mean, it, they did finally get it to work, but they were so focused on trying to get these effects to work, the exploding this or the, the giant birthday cakes or the quicksand birthday cake or all these things, right? Yeah. That they, they basically left Adam and I alone. And another thing I, I heard, something interesting, you might, uh, kind of a, a bit of trivia, that when I got my star on Hollywood Boulevard on January 9th of, uh, of, of last year, right, uh, right afterward, uh, it's kind of customary for whoever it is, the celebrity, that they kind of throw like a thank you party, you know, uh, and, and so I did that. Uh, and it was actually, uh, the ceremony was in front of the um, Guinness 
Museum of World Records on Hollywood Boulevard, very famous, ideal place to have your star, believe me. But around the corner at the Hollywood Museum, uh, I uh, had rented out the museum and uh, threw a big party for a lot of people in the industry and stuff like that. And uh, one of the things that one of the people that came to the party was, his name was Robert Butler, and he was the director that directed the pilot episode of Batman. Oh, okay. I had no idea he was going to be there. My my press agent had you know arranged for lots of people to come and stuff like that, and I hadn't seen him in fifty five years. Wow. You okay. That's hadn't amazing. Seen this man. That's cool. <laughs> and and I was so thrilled to talk to him. I like hugged him. You know. I mean, I, and I remember that because on the first episode, usually on the pilot the production company will kind of go all out because that's going to be the episode that they use to try to sell it to the network, you know? So instead of a, a a six day to make 30 minute show, we had three weeks. I mean, they really went all out to make this the best show they could make. And he told me a story that I never knew that had happened at the time that I'd like to share with you and your, your listeners. And he said, Bert, he said, he said, when I came on the set to direct the pilot, the executive producer, William Bodozier, he came over to me, he said, you know, we've just hired this young kid to play Robin. And he's never done anything before. He studied, but he's never performed on television, never done a role. And we don't know if you're going to be able to work with him. Can, can, you, can you go talk to him, pull him aside, talk to him a little bit and see if you think you're going to be able to work with the guy. Okay. Yep. And yep. he said, yes. And I remember, I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, some things in life you can remember. And I remember, and that was like on the very first day, him coming over, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I said, sure. I mean, wow, the director talking to me. You have to understand, it's my first job, right. first time, never done anything like that. And he, you know, he asked, I don't remember the questions he asked, but we spoke and, and, and it was obviously about the role and this and that. And he told me at this event right after I got my star 55 years later that he said he went back to the executive producer producer said do you think you can work with the guy he says let me tell you something this guy is so good that I'm not going to direct him to do anything because anything I tell him to do is going to be less than what this guy does by himself nice it's almost unheard of you know and as an example I'll give you a quick example on the on the first episode um there is, this is a Riddler show with Jill St. John as Molly and Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. Right. And Batman and Robin get a tip that there's going to be a robbery by the Riddler at this museum. So we drive over in the Batmobile, you know, rush over, right? Obviously breaking speed records <laughs> or, or breaking uh, speed laws, I should say. Right. And we get there and the camera was set up. And, and you have to understand, I did what I thought was right, you know? In other words, if you get into something and you're really into it, you know, you can forget in a way that you're doing it in front of a camera and you're just doing it, you, you know, you're just doing it. So instead of opening the door and getting out, as most people would, you know, do with a, a, a car, especially with the Batmobile, very heavy and the door very heavy, I just jumped up on top of the door and walked to the back fin you know, it has a fin going, the Batmobile has fins going on either side of the back. Right. And right. then jumped off. Well, then I heard the director say, cut, cut, cut. Bert, what are you doing? I said, well, <laughs> I just, you know what I mean? And I just, I just got on the, the car and walked to the end and jumped off. 
So we, you got to tell us if you're going to do something different. We thought you were coming out the door. And I said, oh, no, I didn't know. And they said, and, they, and the camera guys were saying, I can't follow him. I, you know, and so now, they, but, but the director said, I really liked what he did. I mean, it was just so unexpected, you know, and it worked. Okay, so now they took an extra 45 minutes to lay the track down on the ground. They put plywood and then they lay the steel bars and they have a, a dolly that, that with, with rubber wheels that they push the camera truck along so they can pan along with you. And they had me recreate that thing. But it, that was something that was spontaneous. Now, a little piece of more trivia is that George Barris, who created the Batmobile, he was there. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know he was there. And I didn't know that he had two other people with him and all three of them were about to have a heart attack. And I was going to ruin their paint job. Oh, man, were they. And, then, and, then, and, then, and later on, the producer said, we told him, don't you dare go bother that actor. Don't you dare go near him. I don't care how mad you are about your paint job. That's amazing. Right. I mean, he had like 35 coats of paint on this. Wow. And I'm walking on a fin that came to a point. You know, I mean, if anything, it was very easy to have damaged. I didn't damage anything, but they were, you know, hysterical that it would be damaged. Because what are you going to do? Are you going to fix 35 coats of paint before the next shot? So anyway, it worked out great. But that just shows you the kind of crazy stuff that can happen, you know, uh, on a set. That's amazing. Hey, folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Prepare for a 
a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. And that's a deep cockpit too. I, I've sat in that, and uh, I and I could totally attest that the current owner does not want you touching the paint or jumping up on that at all. But, <laughs> no, um, no, it's that's deep. It's like it's like sitting in a boat. That's the only way I can really uh, describe it because you're so recessed, and it seems like it has like just this unforgiving sort of wooden. Uh, I, I guess you'd call it like dashboard. <laughs> well, no, I, I, ours wasn't wooden on the on the on the original car. Okay. Um, which, by the way, was later sold for three point six million dollars. Wow! You know, wow. And, and what's so interesting about it is that uh, it wasn't as nice as I mean, it was perfect on the outside and dashboard and everything great, but on the floor they had uh, it, it wasn't really finished on the floor because they had to mount cameras and lights inside of it on the floor to get lighting. Uh, up on uh, on Adam and I as we were you know sitting there, but uh, it 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 was a great a great car. It was a great experience doing it, and and uh, it, it, but I like to do different things. Like I would jump over the door to get in and out. I didn't always open. I mean, sometimes I opened the door, right? But right. the thing was is that because I was doing whatever I felt was right. The camera crew was always afraid of me. Like, what, can, what is he going to do now? Is he going to, you know, you know, and because they're all, everybody's on a time thing. Everybody worries about time. Oh, we got to get the shot. We got to get the shot. You know, and there's right. a very famous phrase in, in 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 television and filmmaking, which is "hurry up and wait." Right. Oh, Bert, we got to have you in makeup right now. Oh, Bert, we got to have you in wardrobe. You got to go right now, Bert. Right now. Everybody's always panicking. Everybody's so nervous, right? And then you get there, and you wait. Right. Anyway, and you know, when, when you're, when you're filming a show, which again, for me, I had no idea about it, but you know, I would sit there and wait at least 45 minutes before every single shot. And then I would work for 30 seconds. Wow. And then I'd go back and wait another 45 minutes and just wow. think about that Yeah. all day long, every <laughs> single day. Okay. And then of course, you know, if they had a second take or something, but I'm still telling you, within five minutes, at the most, even if you had a bunch of second or third or fourth takes, it's still over. Right. And now, oh, we go get, oh, we got to go get the film. Oh, the camera's got a problem or the sound or, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, we got to relight this or, you know, I mean, there's so much involved in making it. But we had the best pros and look how beautiful the show turned out. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, I read an interview with you that said um, that Adam drove like a maniac and he cracked one of the Batmobiles up and then you cracked it up a couple times. Is that true? 
uh, not quite. He 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 would he loved to race. Okay, he would gun this thing, and it was so funny because he was Batman. He'd been around. Everybody, all the crew looked at him like he could do no wrong. Right? right. Me, anything. If I just like <laughs> just came too close to the edge or do this, oh, this kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 yet I, I love those people and I got along with them, but they knew I was a kid. And you have to understand, here I was 20, 21 years of age. The closest person in age to me was Adam at 37, right? Uh, 38, wow. I should say. He was 17 years older than me. And then all of these the crew members were like in their 50s or 60s, because they always have the best, the most experienced people, everybody doing the doing the stuff. So I was like, you know, it was like my childhood, I guess the older part of my childhood, <laughs> you know, where I'm just becoming really an adult, but, you know, was in a, in a very serious, very somber, like, oh, you know, you got to be really careful. And, and there's so many things you can trip over and break your neck or uh, on, a, on a, you know, you got to with all the cables and all that stuff. But I quickly got used to it. And, you know, and, and it was fun to make it, you know, it was, and with my gosh, the stars. Oh, every week I was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was the kid in the candy store. <laughs> it was somebody that I either watched on television or had seen in movies. Now, Adam said that you didn't know sometimes on a given day you'd walk onto the set and you had no idea what movie star was going to be guest starring on that episode. And it kind of made him nervous. Did you ever have that feeling as well? No, no, I didn't because and I don't remember him saying that, but, you know, you have to understand when you're doing this, you're so involved with your portion of it, right? That you, you know, uh, you, I, I don't even know what's coming next. I mean, it could be uh, the whole day is just scenes in the Batcave, right? Or right. driving or this or that. And then all of a sudden the next day, there you are. There's this huge set with all the villains and the villainous girlfriends and the, and the, uh, and the henchmen and the, you know, all of that stuff. I, I didn't really follow it because I was so involved with, with what I was doing and making sure that I memorized my lines and were right. ready to get to work. You got to tell us about some of these people like Frank Gorshin. I mean, he was an impressionist. He did so much comedy. He, how, what was he like? Nicest man in the world. After the series, he even came out to my house and uh, he was deathly afraid of dogs. <laughs> wow. And we have the biggest dogs in the world here, right? <laughs> but such a nice man. And uh, we had some great conversations and uh, I adored him. I, you know, it, it got to where we were like a big family and everybody, uh, everybody really cared for each other. You know, it was, uh, he, he was wonderful. And, and he, he, his laugh, I mean, he had a rubber face. I mean, yeah. I don't know how to describe it. He could just, contort his face and his voice and he was just an amazing wonderful sweet human being and yet he played this just horrible you know evil riddler right <laughs> and and speaking of the villains um i read that frank sinatra had accepted the role of the of the joker but he had done it right after um caesar romero signed for it <laughs> well he didn't accept the role because it wasn't he wanted the role Oh, okay. And, but the role had been previously offered to and accepted by Cesar Romero. And so and he was upset that he couldn't have that role. But, you know, it it uh, it worked out. It worked out great. Cesar was great. And he had a wonderful laugh. Uh, I mean, and I must tell you, there were so many stars that wanted to be on Batman and there weren't enough roles. Right. I mean, right. It, 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 you're talking about uh, a, a two episodes to make a, a full week's show. 
uh, and that took six days to make. And there was just no, you know, and there's only so many. So what the producers did, because so many celebrities wanted to be on the show, was they created that scene of walking up the side of the building where a window would open. And the first one was uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Right. Jerry Lewis or Don Ho or Colonel Clink or Lurch or White or, you know, uh, Dick Clark. I mean, all of these people made guest appearances and, and, oh my God, their kids were, I mean, driving them crazy. You got to get on Batman. You got to get on Batman. (laughs) That's amazing. There was one story I heard, one of my favorite actors, Vincent Price, I guess him and Adam West were supposed to be throwing eggs at you and they kind of overdid it on purpose. Do you recall? Well, that? You know, of course. Oh, I'll never forget. It was a scene <laughs> where where um, I've been captured by Egghead, and he's got me in a you know he's got his arm around my neck holding me, and Batman comes in to rescue me. And when he comes in, uh, before uh, w- during their dialogue, um, that he cracks like two eggs on my head, and then you know, and then there's supposed then Batman says something and he lets go of me. Well, the two of them decided to have a little fun. And what they did is they purposely messed up their lines after each take. You see, it started off where I get two eggs cracked on the head and then they have their dialogue. So they thought, well, it'll be fun. Let's just mess up like five or six takes. And it was like more than 12 eggs were broken on my head. And I'll tell you something, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. But after 12 eggs, it's starting to sting. And I got this, you know, egg shampoo type thing going down the back of my neck into my under my shirt into my tights i mean it was a sticky mess and 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 then i realized that they would purposely done that so at what happened is when the uh, when the uh, egghead lets go of me uh i'm supposed to pick up a half a dozen eggs and just throw at him well i didn't do that i was like furious I picked up a full dozen eggs and I went over and I hit him so hard on the top of his egg that his egg moved, you know, the top part of his head. And, uh, but you know, it it was still fun. And we, then we had, of course, a giant egg fight and I, I was a pitcher uh, and I just had some fun. I thought, you know, these crew guys, you know, they're always teasing me. They're always kind of making fun of me. You know, I mean, they, they wanted to, as I was the kid, right. Somebody to pick on. So when it came to throwing the eggs and we're throwing, supposed to throw them at the villains and the, I mean, they're like hundreds of eggs being thrown. I am purposely, okay, throwing the eggs at the crew, hitting the crew with these eggs, the camera and stuff. Okay. And then you're getting hit with real eggs and they're all over you and stuff like that. And then they started picking up eggs and throwing at us. And finally they had to stop the whole thing. And oh, everybody got yelled at because forever to clean things up. Got egg egg on the in the camera lens. I mean, oh, it was. <laughs> but we crazy. had fun. You know, it was a lot of fun. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like it, especially with Vincent Price. I've heard that he's known to often make you know make it so that he, everyone can have fun on on a set that he's on. He, well, he was very nice to me. Although I must tell you, I remember as a child watching The Raven, oh, and, yeah. and you know, uh, and when he first came on that set, it's like I had kind of like a butterfly in my stomach. You know, that moment when you see somebody that was. Uh, kind of fearsome you know what yeah. I mean? that you, and it frightened absolutely you. but it, it was such a nice man and it, it was a great it worked out wonderful nice nice i mean the list could go on forever the, you know the burgess meredith and julie newmar roddy mcdowell milton burrow victor buono i mean do you have do you have like a, do you have a favorite one like were you happy when one of them would come back to reprise their role 
I enjoyed every minute working with these actors. The, every one of them was somebody that I had great respect for. And like I said, I was like a kid in the candy store. Everything looked fantastic and everything was great. And it was just, uh, and they were, everybody was nice to me. And that was just, I just had a really good time. Right, right. Now, what about Bruce Lee? Um, I guess when you acted with him, it was his first filmed fight scene and you guys became friends in real life. Is that correct? Well, we, we were friends before that. Oh, nice. We lived in the same complex of, of condos and he and I used to spar together. I mean, really spar, really, you know. And uh, on Batman, the, that, the executive producer, William Dozier, who produced Batman, also was producing The Green Hornet, which he was introducing in the next season on ABC. Right. And what better way to pre-introduce the show to create some activity to have, uh, you know, uh, you know, Green Hornet and Cato, Van Williams and, uh, and Bruce Lee come on our show to, you know, appear and have some scenes with Batman and Robin, the number one show in the world. So uh, when we had the fight scene on Batman, they wouldn't let us do it when really authentically. Everything is done. You, you have to understand there was no blood on Batman. Right. I mean, there was <laughs> violence, but nobody really got hurt. You know, you'd see somebody pick up a chair or a table and slam it down on somebody. And <laughs> Batman would fall, but in two seconds later, he's up again. Right. right. It's it was not it was it was stylized so that it could be enjoyed by children and not nothing where there's real blood or real danger. Right. So they wanted us to keep the style of fighting like that kind of style, you, you know, and um, but but it was it was fun. And it is true. The, the great piece of trivia, Bruce Lee, who became the most famous martial artist in cinema in history, his first fight scene of his career was fighting me on Batman. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. You also had Chad and Jeremy, the singing duo, on the show. Did you get to know them at all? Uh, no, they just came in for one day of work. Uh, they were very nice, and uh, I, I love their music and stuff, and yeah. certainly they played, uh, you know, uh, in the show. I mean, it was great. You know, Leslie Gore uh, right. was on our show, too. I mean, you know, what a great musical artist. She played uh, uh, like, like Robin is to Batman, uh, she was to Catwoman. She was like Catwoman's assistant, and her name was Pussycat. Right. That's right. And do you remember working with David Lewis, who played Warden Crichton? I remember meeting him several times, but, you know, I, I don't remember having, you know, conversation with him. It, uh, I don't know why, but, you know, a lot of times one thing or another, like, oh, Bert, you got to get back into makeup or, oh, you got to go do this or, you know, got to go change your cape or, you know, there's always something. You know, it's like you have no peace. <laughs> so you're you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And while you're waiting, you're having to do this or that or this or that or this or that. So you can't even relax. You could. You, in other words, you would think if you have 45 minutes between shots, you can just pull out a nice book and read it. But you never have the privacy. <laughs> oh, we got to have this. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, no, they got to try this on. Oh, my gosh. Right, right. <laughs> And it wears you down by the end of the day. I mean, you are exhausted, you know, and, and the lights, you have to understand this is not today's filmmaking where they have cool lights, lights that are to be very bright, but cool. We had these giant arc lamps on Batman oh, and these yeah. things that you'd be under that and you're sweating in like five minutes, these huge, powerful lights. Right. And so and sometimes Adam and I, by the late afternoon, being under these hot lights, something would make us laugh and then we'd laugh through a bunch of takes 
the director would get panicky. You know, one director said, you two are going to laugh me out of the business. You know, <laughs> I mean, we just, you know, you just get, I mean, here you're in a costume and it's uncomfortable and you're sweating and the hot lights and, you know, and you're like almost dizzy, but you know, it all came out great and it looked great and they edited beautifully and the music was fantastic. Oh yeah. Think of all those effects visual effects with the powers and the zaps and the whams and the sound effects. I mean, this was a fantastic show. It was so far ahead of its time. Nobody had ever done anything like it. And what was so cool is that the crew, even the crew members got in on it. You know, everybody got in on the style. Like one of the things that I didn't understand was why is it that whenever they filmed the villain's hideout, it was always filmed at an angle. I didn't understand it. I, you know, I even said one time to one of the camera guys, he said, you know, what's the matter with your camera? Nothing. Well, why is your angle there? He said, you don't mean you don't know why we, we film it at an angle? I said, no, why? Why are you filming the villain the villain's hideout at an angle? He says, because they're crooked. <laughs> oh, okay. You mean, oh, the camera's crooked. Oh, my gosh. I, even I never thought of that. That's amazing. But in other words, everybody got in on it and everybody had fun. And that's what made our show such a hit is that so many people added their creativity to Batman. Right, right. And one of the things I learned um, was that because the mask didn't cover that much of your face, it would have been impractical to have a stuntman take your place. So you would have do a lot of your own stunts. And you even quoted as saying, I'm beginning to wonder if Batman and Robin's life in the comics is as dangerous as ours. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened, like with dynamite going off near your head and stuff? Well, I had a stuntman but they only used him for shots that were a great distance away because he didn't look like me. Right. And uh, I, I got my first taste of it on the first day of filming, the very first shot in Bronson Canyon where they were filming the famous scene of the Batmobile coming out of the Batcave. And they, you know, this is like, God, I had to be there at six in the morning and makeup at 6.30 and uh, on the set in wardrobe at 7 a.m. And they said, okay, Bert, you, you know, we're going to have the scene where you're going to come out of the Batcave in the Batmobile. We've got the Batmobile in this cave. Walk up there and go in the cave, get in the Batmobile, and we're going to film you coming out. And I said, okay. So I go up there and, and, you know, I go into this cave and it's dark, you know, you, and it takes, a, a, you know, a few minutes for your eyes to adjust. I found the Batmobile. I got in there and I looked over and I saw what I thought was Adam, but it, but I said, Adam, and he said, no, my name's Hubie. I said, oh, because he's dressed like Batman. I said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, the studio hired me. It's a very dangerous shot we're about to do. And uh, they don't want to take a chance of Adam West getting hurt. So they hired me. I said, oh, dangerous. Oh, yeah. We got to come out at 55 miles an hour. We got to make a sharp left turn, skid the back end of the car around and race down uh, on the road. And, you know, there's, he says, you know, he says, look, he says, I love it. He says, the more bones I get broken, the more money I get paid. <laughs> okay. Oh, I said, okay. So you're a stuntman, right? Yeah, of course. And I said, gee, do I have a stuntman? He said, yeah, you have one. I said, well, that's great. <laughs> uh, where is well, last time I saw him, he was talking, having coffee with Adam West. <laughs> and so I hear him say, okay, roll it up, get ready to shoot. And, and, and you know, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a terrible mistake. One of the assistant directors comes running. Bert, what's the problem? We're ready to shoot. I said, yeah, but but this man's a stuntman. He says, I know it. He said, yeah, but he's telling me this is a dangerous shot. Yeah, we know that, Bert. 
He says, yeah, but what? he tells me I have a stuntman, but he's having coffee with Adam West. Yes, what's the point? The point is, why am I sitting here if it's so dangerous that you're having Adam protected by having a stunt? Why aren't you having a person stand in for me? Oh, we can't, we can't use him. Oh, okay. Well, why can't you use him? Well, he doesn't look like you. Well, well, well why, did, why did you hire him? If he didn't look like you, couldn't find anybody else. Oh, so you just sit there, Bert, and hold on, because it's you know, going to be coming out real fast. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, what are you going to do, right? right. You're, you're so dumbfounded by the answer. There's no other solution, right? And so I said, okay, well, where's my seatbelt? Oh, no seatbelt. Oh, Jesus. Huh. What am I going to hold on to? Well, there's no handles. There's nothing to hold on to. All I've got is this one quarter inch thick flexible. It wasn't even plexiglass. It was just plastic. That was the windshield. Oh, you know what I mean? I mean, that was our, our windshield. And I'm holding on to that. I mean, I hold on and I can squeeze it like a piece of rubber. I mean, it was incredibly <laughs> flimsy. And we're going to be coming out at 55 miles an hour. Sure enough. <laughs> Out at 55 miles an hour, they go straight to the camera. The, the, the stuntman was perfect. He made that sharp left turn, but then something unexpected happened. My door flew open. Oh. And it was oh, no. supposed to fly open. And it knocked the cameraman off the camera truck. Okay, and he was injured. And it knocked the camera over. The whole camera truck flipped over. Oh, okay, God. I was thrown towards the opening. And the centrifugal force of throwing me out of making that sharp left turn. And I, my arm, I just threw my left arm behind me. And I don't know how it happened, but I luckily wrapped my little finger on my left hand around the gear shift knob. I mean, it's one in 10 million that that could have happened, but it kept me from falling out. Wow. But when it kept me from falling out, the tremendous force of the centrifugal force pulled my finger out of joint. Good heavens. And, and I don't know if you've ever happened. That's an incredibly painful thing. So here the, 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 the car comes to a stop. The dust is everywhere. One of those giant arc lamps falls over. If it had hit somebody, it would have killed them. Oh no God. question about it. Okay. And they come running. Bert, are you okay? I said, yes, but my hand is hurting me. And, and, and I didn't have a chance to take my glove off. You could see through the glove. My finger had already swollen up like twice the size of the glove. Wow. I mean, of the finger of the glove. And they said, "Oh, your finger's out of joint. We got to get you to a to a you know to a doctor." And, and, and we can we know how painful that is. And I said, "Okay," because it's really killing me. And uh, and so I get out of. They helped me out of the car, and I said, uh, "The Batmobile." I said, "Okay, well now where do I go to get in the car that's going to take me to the hospital?" Oh, Bert, we can't go now. <laughs> what do you mean? We didn't get to shop. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, and we've got a whole crew here. It's costing us $30,000 every 10 minutes, Bert. And, oh my God. you know, so you got to stay. I ended up doing that shot three more times. Oh, my God. Okay. And even though it worked, they said, oh, let's shoot another one. It's like, oh, my gosh. You can do it, <laughs> you know, do it again. Do it again. Oh, it will, fantastic. Do it again. <laughs> but so fantastic. Why am I doing it again? Just as a back, <laughs> just as a protection, right? And it was noon before I left for the hospital. This had happened at 7 7 15 7 30 in the morning oh my god and for those first four days in a row i went to the emergency hospital 
with second degree burns with, uh, uh, you know, a two by four had landed on my nose and broke my nose Ooh. when I'm tied down on a table and they were supposed to have a breakaway wall and the studio forgot to build a breakaway wall. <laughs> and there's no time to have a breakaway wall. So they used two half sticks of dynamite and nearly blew the entire soundstage down. And oh this two by four was blown off and fell down and hit me in those broke my nose. Wow. My arms were tied down and couldn't even protect my face. I mean, it was a pretty dangerous show. And I'm telling you, by the end of the first week, I wasn't sure, sure I was going to survive the first week. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what, the studio was very smart. They took out this huge multi-million dollar life insurance policy on me. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. And I could swear by the end of the third season, I thought they were trying to collect on that policy. <laughs> Yeah, didn't they 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 dangled you by your toes over three hungry Bengal tigers, and that scared the crap out of you, right? Well, just hang, dangling them was bad enough. But when the and you have to understand the the director and the cameraman were in a steel cage, <laughs> eight feet above my head, right? Oh my and these cats could jump higher than than I was only like was with twelve feet above them, and they can jump fifteen feet. Oh my god! And so the director says. Can you get them to do more stuff? And so they were tapping around me and they said, no, no, that's, that's not enough. Do more. They hung meat over my head uh-huh. and these tigers were jumping up at the meat. Okay. And I'm pulling, straining. I mean, I'm <laughs> fear of my life. And afterwards they said, Bert, your acting was fantastic. I'm <laughs> <laughs> scared to death for my life. <laughs> Wow, that's Batman for you. Oh, my God. I guess Shelly Winter said she was lucky to get out of Batman Alive because uh, she was appalled at the lack of safety protocols on the set. Oh, yeah, it, it was something. Uh, but, you see, again, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was, you know, these safety issues and stuff like that. Right. It was my first show. And, you know, I'm the kid who's coming in green, and so I have to kind of put up with everything. I can't really be a person to complain or I just have to kind of take it and survive. Right, right. Is it true that Adam West would ask them to check the brakes on the Batmobile before he had to do a scene? Because he'd have to stop so close to the cameras, he didn't want to wipe the crew out. <laughs> yeah, well, there were some brake problems with the Batmobile. That's the reason he asked. Oh, geez. Because there was some stuff where one time it didn't stop properly. And it almost, you know, ruined the set because he couldn't stop it. So, you know, he wouldn't do it on every shot, but occasionally he would do it when he thought there was going to be, you have to really, you know, race with it or something, you know? Right. Right. So now while you were shooting the show, um, I guess there was a time where you were visiting your in-laws and apparently when you got to their house, like you, there were 175 calls from fans within 45 minutes and so many kids outside the house that you had to call the cops. Do you remember that story? No, I don't think that happened. Oh, okay. Cause I, I, I read it in a couple I remember in a couple of papers, and the, the basically when you called the cops, the cops said, okay, I'll be right there. Can I bring my kids? <laughs> well, let, let me tell you, even even as of two years ago, I make appearances, and, and like I was, a, uh, I was the, um, the Grand Marshal at the Huntington Beach 4th of July parade, which is like the biggest in the nation, and there was more than 100,000 people there, and when you get more than 100,000 people or near 100,000, the... Uh, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security actually provides the security. And I even then, and this is like 55 years later, 50 years later, they had all these FBI agents. They were asking me for their autograph for their kids. So that's that's not something that I would find to be unusual. But I don't remember. I don't remember 
that, that thing happening. And, and I must tell you, you know, whenever you have a certain amount of celebrity status, there's a lot of things that, well, it's like a fish story. You know, it's, it, it starts with as a minnow in Los Angeles and becomes a whale by the time it gets to right, New York. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, they have a famous saying in show business. When you sneeze in Los Angeles, they say, God bless you in New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So now um, tell us a little bit about the making of the Batman movie. Was it is it true that really part of the reason that they made it was because they wanted a bat boat and bat copter, but they just couldn't afford it for the show? Um, no, no, I don't <laughs> recall that. I don't recall that either. But it was it, it was it, it was way over budget. There's no question about that. It was there was no question about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what was Lee Merriweather like? Oh, very sweet. I mean, every actor on Batman was incredibly nice. I, I never, I was thrilled and they were so nice to me and I was nice to them. And, you know, you, you don't have as much time to talk with them as you might think. You know, again, it, and it's such an irony because you, you're sitting there for 45 minutes, but you start to have a conversation and say, oh, uh, you know, uh, you know, can we see you for a minute or can, you know, oh, we got to go try this on or, you, you know, it's, you'd never really have a chance to sit there for an extended period of time, at least that I didn't. And, you know, to talk to people, but you get enough to talk and you, and you find out that everybody's really nice and you, you know, you, 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 you love being with there with people there. Did you know at the time that the, the show was having such an impact on the film industry because, you know, like films were starting to adapt the tongue in cheek style of the Batman show. Like there was a Dean Martin picture called Texas across the river. And that's kind of quoted as one of the first movies to really do that. And it was totally inspired by Batman. Did you, did you like sense that the show was really having a profound impact? I knew the show was having an impact, but I didn't think it was impacting the film and television industry, but I'll tell you something you might find interesting. If you think about it, look at all the superhero movies that have come on, you know, following our, our, our show. I mean, even now, there's all these superhero movies. They go on and on and on. And something we did on our show that has shown up in filmmaking that I, I must tell you is uh, something that I, I didn't even notice for years, but I, I notice now and I see it in, on almost every film where it, at, at a moment that is so critical and so dangerous in a movie and something really horrible is about to happen, the, the stars can have a dialogue between them where there's this comic humor for a brief minute. You know what I mean? Right. Like if we get out of this alive, I'm never letting you come over to my house or whatever, <laughs> that kind of a thing, you know? Um, and, and it started on, on, on Batman. And I'll give you a, a typical scene where this happened. There was a scene that we were uh, after the Joker and we're there in this warehouse. And all of a sudden eight of these huge henchmen of the Joker are there. And that Batman and Robin are going to have to fight him. And I, and uh, I have this dialogue. I, I say, gosh, Batman, there's eight of them against two of us. Odds in our favor. Okay? <laughs> because there's only eight of them, right? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, it, and that kind of stuff, you know, translated down the line. And I've seen it in Bad Boys movies and, and all, you know, and all the superhero films right. you know, where they have this kind of levity in the, in the middle of something that's super dangerous. Right, right. Um, so after Batman, you started to move into doing uh, personal appearances. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you did quite a bit of that for a long time, right? 25 years. Um, I For 25 years, I did 300 cities a year. Nice. And I, living, well, there's only 365 days. I was doing 
300 cities. Now, some of those were three cities in one day, but I was gone 11 months of the year on the road. And it's like living out of a suitcase. That was for 25 years. And then I, I was, I've done appearances for 50 years, right. making appearances, signing. I think I've done over 7,000 appearances, signed about eight and a half million autographs. That's wow. amazing. That is, uh, that's tough. It wears you down. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, there's just no way to, you know, and all these flights and here and there and, and stuff like that. And it was fun. Don't miss it. I had a great time and stuff like that. But it was, uh, it, it was n nice to uh, take a break from that. Yeah. I mean, you did a lot of cool stuff. Like you went to schools and taught, you know, bicycle safety and stuff. They, they had, I, a lot of that seemed like it was very rewarding. You know, I'll tell you something. What is rewarding, and, and a lot of people say, I don't understand, how can you meet all these people? Don't you get sick of people? And I say, no, not really. And I'll tell you why. Because the people that would come up to see us, maybe because of the style of our show, but when I would meet people and they would come up and it was like, all of a sudden, these adults now that were kids then okay uh but even even more recently when they would come up there's something that happens when they really meet you where the adults become like child kids again right. you know what i mean like right. there was a typical situation to mom and you know, mom and dad and their two kids and and uh they would come up and and then the father would say to maybe one son oh look this was this is robin this is robin this was my favorite superhero and his son looking at him, dad talking like this for you know and then the mother would say something like oh and i was in love with robin mom what are you talking like that you know i mean so and so for me it was very entertaining right because you're you're seeing people that all of a sudden they're transported back in time right to uh, something that was very memorable because remember we were in people's homes. We were there right after their dinner. Right. You know, we were there when, when everybody's together in a family and people have fond memories of family time together. And every week, twice a week, we're in their home with them for three and a half years. Right. It was, uh, it was, it, it, and it, it's always been very touchy. Now people would come up to me and say, you know, believe it or not, I could have gone out and done wrong things in my life. I watched your show and I decided to get, become a firefighter. I decided to get in law enforcement, wow. something positive. That's cool. That's cool. And you know, there's actors like Adam West and um, even William Shatner and Anthony Geary, who played Luke Spencer on General Hospital. They all kind of were so closely identified with the characters they played that they had to distance themselves from the characters for a while. And eventually all three of them would would come back and embrace that character and understand that, you know, the fans are what made them. Did you ever go through anything like that? Do you ever feel I, I need to distance myself from Robin or did that just kind of stay with you the whole time? You know, well, how do you distance yourself from something that they select you to be yourself? Because, right. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it for a minute, uh, like when, when I would, uh, these last two movies for Warner Brothers that I did animated with The Voice, they said, what does it feel like coming back and doing Robin again? I said, well, you know, it doesn't feel any different because, uh, you know, the character that they wanted me to play was myself. So it's very easy to be yourself. You know, and uh, and in fact, I got a very nice compliment from the executive producer. He said, I don't know how you do it, Bert, but when you say those lines, you are exactly, you sound exactly, none of us, we're blown away here. We can't understand how after 50 years, there is not the slightest difference in sound in your voice, you know. 
And, and they said it's almost scary. That was what the executive said. It's almost scary that somebody could sound exactly alike, you know, and, and, and they loved it, you know. So it all worked out and it's worked out very, you know, very good for me. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's been a lifetime and people say, well, how about like fact that, you know, you didn't do a lot of other roles. I said, well, actually I had, I starred in 40 films for television, but this was such a successful role. And the way I look at it is you could have a glass full of, of, of water or, or glass full of, you know, in terms of your, the things you do with a bunch of different shows you've done or one show that was so outstanding, you know, and right. uh, it took up most of the, it still filled your glass. And that's the way I look at it. That's amazing. Have you ever met John Duncan? He was the guy that played Robin in the original Batman and Robin serials from 1949. Because I, I read an interview with him in 1980 where he claimed that he was offered the role of Robin, but he turned it down because he wanted like $1,500 an episode or something. And then after he saw your success, he was kind of kicking himself over it. Did, did you ever get to meet him? No. And I never heard that story that he was offered the role. Interesting. I yeah. Been, let me tell you, they interviewed 1,100 people. Now it's possible he could have been one of the 1,100. But, right. You know, no, that, that, that never happened. And, and when you think about it, uh, here I screen tested with Adam West. Right. And they, they had several other people that were, you know, screen testing with like Lyle Wagner had another young actor screen test as Robin. Right. So, uh, no, I, I don't I don't think I mean, can I tell you, it's like so many things, stories can be out and this and that. Some things are true. Some things are exaggerated. Some things were never true. Yeah, I wonder if he was exaggerating because it was a direct interview with him from 1980, and uh, I was I was thinking the same thing when I was reading. It. I'm like, I don't. This doesn't sound true, you know. <laughs> no, because that serial was made at the time I was born. Right. So he would have had to be, geez, would have had to be at least 20 years older than me. Right. So he he had to be if you know, and I don't know how how old he was at that time but he certainly unlikely could have played a 15 and a half year old because he didn't look 15 and a half when he was doing the serial in 1946 right right we're making the show in 1966 20 years later yeah yeah he would have been way too old that doesn't make sense you know (laughs) interesting so there was a time when you were doing an appearance and some college kids stole your robin costume do you remember that story i was yeah i was at harvard getting an award uh, for being man of the year at Harvard University. And uh, some uh, couple of Harvard students came up and said, you know, we were security and we've got to, because I had my costume there, we got to watch your costume. <laughs> One of them was uh, Colin. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the you know, uh, um, he has his own television show. Conan O'Brien. Uh, oh, yeah, Conan O'Brien. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's true. That was, that was true. That really happened. I got it back after a day, but it did <laughs> I mean, that's a $500,000 costume, you know, that I, we auctioned, I, I donated to charity and they auctioned off right. you know, for kids for helping, you know, underprivileged children. So, uh, yeah, that was a little bit tense, but it really did happen. And Conan O'Brien, he was the guilty party. That's funny. That's hilarious. He did, he did something like he said, a, um, a Riddler line or something about the costume, like. Uh, I'd have to look that up, but it was basically like, you know, riddle me this, where's your costume kind of thing. Yeah, yep. I, I remember that. He really did. He really did. That's amazing. But he didn't do it when he was getting the costume. He was acting acting like he was the security. It was afterwards. Right. That hours later, you know, <laughs> that there was some kind of a recording that was delivered, you know. That's amazing. That's too funny. 
but it, 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 it look, it all worked out. It was fun. It was a little tense for a while because I mean, the studio made some phone calls and that costume got back real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it true that um, when you were in Baltimore and Chattanooga, people tried to shoot at you? No, there was one instance where somebody who was uh, had some mental issues, I believe, was in line. Tall gentleman. I had all this security and all these kids and all this other tall gentleman. And um, he had a gun. Oh, wow. He pulled it out. And it was weird because there was a moment or it seemed like eternity. But where the security there, you know, the, and these are policemen around, but they're watching the crowd They're, You know, they're not watching when it happened but then all of a sudden you know what i mean they saw it and then i kind of dove out of the way they didn't shoot and they you know apprehended them and arrested them wow but it was you, you have to understand you're sitting behind a table and your chair is tucked into the table you can't just right. push it back real easy and you're in costume you know what i mean right it was uh but i just you know i got i got out of the way real quick Right. You know, and, and I was, you know, you're caught off guard. I mean, although I must tell you, I, I, I sense something wasn't right. You know, we all have certain senses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, and you see somebody in line, it's this big, tall person and everybody else is a kid. You know what I mean? And they're kind of, you know, quiet and strange. And you know what I mean? Right. It just makes you think, well, why is this person here? You know? Yeah. So I was yeah. a little bit more guarded. You know, I wasn't completely taken by surprise, but. You, you know, you don't see somebody normally coming to get an autograph and pull a gun. Right, right. And that could be part of your uh, martial arts training as well, like anticipating some sort of issue. Yeah, but look, you know, you're, 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 your body is under a table. <laughs> I mean, there's, <laughs> there's not like a lot you could do that quickly. And if somebody is holding a gun pointed directly at you, you don't have a lot of time to, you know, to make any real moves other than to get out of the way. Yeah, I just mean to get out of the way. thing to do is get the heck away, you know, get get out of the, you know, the range of the gun. There was one report I read, and I'm just curious as to how true this was, that said in, I think it was in 1975 in Norman, Oklahoma, you supposedly sent four guys to the hospital with by using karate on them because they attacked you. Is that like a publicity thing? I don't remember. I remember, believe it or not, I remember, I don't know about that, I, 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 you know, and I must tell you, 7,000 appearances, right. you know, even though, the, but I do remember fight scenes with the stuntman that got out of hand, but oh, the stuntman actually didn't pull punches and then they hit me and I really hit him back. Oh, wow. Ooh. Oh no, it was, it was, that was real. And it could have happened. I, I don't, I don't recall it. I really, you know, when you, when you know something, you really, the smartest thing to do is try to stay out of the fight. Right, you know, right. you, you try to avoid the problem if you can. It's it, this is all about you know being able to protect yourself right. and you know not use it to start altercations. Right. Oh, definitely. So, what can you tell us about uh, Entertainment Management Corp? Because you managed like Henry Winkler and Mark Hamill and Paul Michael. Well, there was other fan clubs. I, I had a, a company that was doing, and the first I had a rock group the number one rock group in the world at the time, ABBA, the most selling albums in the world. I, I did all of the concert merchandising and fan club and stuff for that. And that was fun. And I also had uh, another company called entertainment licensing where I licensed to uh, help them get, you know, products out that had images like of, you know, um, 
Starsky and Hutch and uh, right. you know some of the current TV shows that were on products and so it, I, I always had kind of a business mind as well. So it, it, I, I and I enjoy being active. I work like here in, in my life now. I, I work seven days a week, you know, and I, I I can't imagine not working and doing something creative. Right, right. You had a lot going on, and didn't you? I saw one where it said you were working with a chemist for to create a glow in the dark substance that you could put on t-shirts and posters and stuff do you remember that yeah yeah oh i've I've been in all kinds of things and and had fun doing it you know and always trying to do something creative trying to you know bring something to the world that might make it uh, a more entertaining fun place you know kind of thing nice nice and what can you tell us about abuse and corruption unlimited where was a company you made that made satirical board games it looks so fascinating yeah, it was actually, yeah, it, it, it was a joke, you know, yes, it was, that was the name of the company, and we had a, it, it, it was, it, it was very satirical, it was a period of time when there was so much satire in our, in our country, and it's like the first game was Mercy the Hospital game, when there's no mercy in this hospital, you know, and there was a sign, you know, hanging out of the hospital today, special clean sheets, you know, right, <laughs> it, <laughs> It, it was fun, you know, and again, it, a lot of the stuff I did was based on the satire of Batman. And even my book was very satirical and the style that it was presented, you know, um, the book Boy Wonder My Life in Tights, where you read it and yet you're not saying, well, is he really pulling my leg? You know, you can't really tell. Right. You know, right. it was done in that wonderful campy style. Well, Adam West said about the book, I, I pretty much ignored it, but I was very grateful that Bert made me a Bert made me a combination of Errol Flynn, King Kong, and Daffy Duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it uh, it was uh, it, you know anything I do, I don't do halfway. So it was a uh, it was a it was kind of a coming age of age book, a story you know of somebody growing up in the in the shadows of the industry, having an opportunity to be in the industry of the film industry, television industry, and then being exposed to every strange thing in the world could just about could happen to you as just a kid growing up, you know, and, and some of the things that you do and you learn and you grow up and, you know, uh, it, it was a real, uh, it was great. I mean, the one thing that I've always done though, has always been very health conscious. Uh, unlike other actors, I never, never smoked, never drank, never took drugs. It was, uh, you know, it was very clean life. And I, I must tell you, it's been so helpful because I look at my health now and I'm so much healthier. And then some of my counterparts in, in the industry that drank and smoked or drank drugs, they just aged terribly, right. you know, and you feel so bad for them. But, uh, but you know, you, we, we got to take care of ourselves. You know, life is a very precious commodity, very frail, very precious. And uh, although I do tell people, the first hundred years are the hardest. After that, it's pretty <laughs> sailing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've had some musical recordings, too. You had, what was it? I've, I've Got Love for My Baby was like sixth on the charts in 71. And you worked with Mort Lindsay and uh, Frank Zappa. Can you tell us about some of that? Uh, well, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, that was his rock group, that these guys were really far out looking, uh, you know, <laughs> Frank Zappa, he, he absolutely amazingly brilliant man, but he just didn't look like you'd think, right? And his group, the Mothers of Invention, they would come out and they'd play, and then they'd just 
tear up their instruments, tear up couches. They tear up everything, just destroy things. <laughs> and and it's like here I am an all American apple pie, and MGM Records had come to me and convinced me to do this album with them and the single, uh, you know, one song, Boy Wonder I Love You, was became number six on WLS in Chicago, but it was taken off because in the song, which I, it was just like, I, I'm speaking, you know, wasn't singing so much, had great music and stuff, but I'm speaking where it was a fan letter and a girl said, can you come over to my house? And, you know, I'd like you to stay the whole summer. I'll make you breakfast in bed. I mean, just so innocent, right? Yeah. But at the time, the, the censors were so tough you couldn't even say that. And so it was number six in, in, in Chicago and ended up getting pulled off because of censors. Now look what you have where the, everything is just the opposite, where it's, it's so unrestricted and so uncensored. But at the time, things were very, very conservative. Right, right. That's amazing. I mean, you've done so many amazing things, you know, and especially like in your filmography, the one that I always remembered as a kid being excited for it to come on TV because you were in it amongst a lot of other cast members was High School USA, which was in 1984. I mean, you had Crystal Bernard, Henry Gibson, most of the cast of Leave it to Beaver. What do you remember about that? Well, you know, you, you remember certain things. You don't remember everything. Um, because there's too many things to remember. Right. But it was, I always had fun, whatever I was doing, you know, I always had, had fun. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. 
So, Bert, why don't you tell us about Gentle Giants and, and how that all came about? Because it was originally Great Dane's adoption and rescue, right? Yes. Um, 26 years ago, when my wife and I moved here where we're living uh, inland, uh, we, oh, that's one of our dogs right there now. <laughs> wants to be part of it and then i start talking about dogs they want to be part of it um yes our uh, my wife and i moved uh inland from the beach uh about 26 years ago with our three-year-old daughter because we thought rather than be living at the beach on a in a in a house that was like four stories with all these balconies way up in the air that would be better for a child to grow up with more of a rural atmosphere so we live about an hour east of los angeles and a wonderful animal friendly community. So we moved here and we decided we were gonna get a dog for our, our daughter and I like Great Danes and my wife grew up with Irish Wolfhounds and it turned out that we, uh, we found, heard about a Great Dane that needed to be rescued and we rescued the dog and just the sweetest dog, I mean, in the world. I mean, they're, they're, the bigger they are, the more gentle they are and which is probably because they're not intimidated by the size of a human being when they can actually be bigger than a human being. Right. And that's why they call them gentle giants. And then we heard about a second one needing rescue and we took that. And then we, the, we did hear of others that needed rescue, but they weren't in an animal shelter. They were in someone's home and they said, well, we're going to be moving and stuff like that. And we, and we said, well, we've got two and I'm sure you'll find somebody to, you know, rescue your dog. Well, it turned out that like a month later, two months later, we heard that all these great Danes were going to shelters and being put to death these incredibly big, loving, sweet dogs. And we checked into, we found out that all breeds have rescues. You know, there's a Chihuahua rescue, there's a German Shepherd rescue, but the Great Dane rescue, the lady that in Southern California that had been doing it, she herself had died. So now all these Great Danes, if you couldn't keep it and went to a shelter, it's killed the day it goes in the shelter, or at least oh, wow. the, for the next two or three days, it's, it's gone. Wow. Because there's just no room. Yeah. So we, I said to my wife, Tracy, in this in the first week in August of 1994, I said, Tracy, we can't let these dogs die. How about just for a couple of weeks, just till we find somebody else to take this over, we rescue these sweet dogs. Well, that was in August of 1994. By the end of August, the same month, we had 102 full-size Great Danes in our house and 62 puppies under seven weeks of age. Oh my seven, seven litters of puppies, wow. okay? Only 62 puppies. Oh, my gosh. So my poor tri- my wife, Tracy, was ended up <laughs> sleeping on the kitchen floor because you got to make sure the puppies are nursing. And then when the mother gets up because they're big Great Danes, they, if they stepped on a puppy, they could kill it. You got to make sure the puppies aren't in the way and got to put her outside to be able to go to the bathroom while you take the litter and incubate them in a warm area and then bring the next litter in and their mother in seven of them <laughs> by the time she got finished with the seventh one it was time to start the first one again oh my god oh it was unbelievable and you know and and by the way after two weeks nobody came by in fact it's been more than 26 years and nobody has come to rescue us <laughs> i mean you know I, I didn't realize what i was getting into but Long story short, we, we've, we've now rescued more than uh, 15,500 dogs. Wow. Uh, we, people would come to give up their Great Dane and then they'd have a different breed, like a, you know, maybe a, a small dog. And they'd say, well, I guess you're going to take my Great Dane so my Great Dane won't die, but I, I guess I'll have to turn in my Cocker Spaniel or my, my Shepherd or my Retriever and they'll, they'll put it to sleep and 
And I, uh, Tracy and I would look at each other, no, no, just leave that dog here too. We'll take that one. And, you know, so um, after, after probably six months of doing this rescue, the first six months now, it's been 26 years, you know, we, I think my wife and I had redefined the term Great Dane to mean if it has four legs and a tail, it must be a Great Dane. Right. <laughs> Everything was coming here. And, you know, when you look and you're living in our home with us, these are not in some yard or some building they're in our home as as members of our family we it, ever since then we've never had less than 50 in our house at any given time 24 wow. 7 so when you're caring for so many dogs you learn a lot you really learn a lot right and um particularly with giant breeds that their life spans are traditionally very short mastiffs and and irish wolfhounds normally only live six to eight years Great Danes normally live seven to nine years. Uh, it's a very short lifespan. And when we would lose a dog, we would de- we were devastated. Right. Uh, so, and, I mean, because you can't adopt every single one of them. You know, some you don't get adopted. Uh, so what we said is, look, there must be something we can do to help these animals live longer. We, you know, they're so gentle and so loving. So we created a feeding and care program where on average, every single dog, just about every single dog living with us was living an extra three years. So the Great Danes that were living from seven to nine years were ended up living 10 to 12 years. Right. And, 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 and this was amazing. And we have a special way we feed them. We have a website, gentlegiantsdogfood.com. And we're using the dog food website and there's a special feeding and care program uh, is on the menu as one of the menu items. And it, 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 it shows and, and tells what took us 25 years of our life to learn the average person can read and learn in less than 25 minutes and add years, four or five, maybe as many as seven or eight years to their dog's life, just by the way you feed and care for them. That's amazing. And so then we said, okay, is there anything else we can do? We thought about it. said, well, what if we made the finest food in the world? Now this is for our dogs. You have to understand when you're living with more than 50 dogs in your house, I'm not thinking about selling dog food or other people's dogs. I'm trying to survive caring for 50 dogs in my house and everyone has got to go out in and out all day. And this one can't be with that one. And this has to do that. And that one came in bandaged. You have to keep put change the bandage. I mean, it is time consuming. So we went out and we had this food made the finest food we could make. And we could afford it. We said, you know, maybe we can pull out another year or two. But what we found out was so upsetting to us. It changed our lives forever. Here's what we found out when we went to make the food. The dog food companies know something the average person doesn't know, which is the more fat content you put in dog food, the hungrier it makes dogs. Okay. The hungrier it makes dogs mean they eat more food and you have to buy more dog food. Right. And you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody making a living. I mean, our, com- you know, our country lives on a capitalist system. But at the same time, when you go to the point of you adding extra fat and extra protein and all these extras there, it, when I actually, they're not even extras, they're excessive to make animals believe they're always hungry so you can sell more dog food. Oh, I find that very upsetting. So long and short of it, I tell people this, go, if you have a dog and you're feeding them a food other than our gentle giants dog food, go feel those kibbles in your fingers. 
you know, rub them in your fingers, put them down, rub your fingers together. You're going to feel that slightly greasy feeling. And everybody feels it because it's, it's there. Just, yeah. I, I've never seen a food that it wasn't on. And I said, you realize that's animal fat? I said, well, I don't, I didn't know what it is. I said, think of it this way. Would you take a can of bacon fat or grease poured down your garbage disposal at home? Would you ever do that? Well, of course not. It would ruin, I mean, it, you know, it would, as you, as I'm sure you guys know, unlike water that evaporates, animal fat coagulates. And when it hardens, it's like cement. Right. So you took a can of bacon fat, poured it down your garbage disposal. You wait four or five hours and it turns to cement. You're going to be buying a new garbage disposal. So what is my point? The point is when you realize that animal fat will ruin a metal garbage disposal, what do you think is happening to the arteries and intestines of dogs when every single day, every single meal, every single bite, every single kibble is encapsulated in animal fat? It's prematurely killing dogs. Right. We have dogs living to 27 years. People say, well, is this some kind of magic? I said, no, we're just not premature, pre prematurely killing them. We're giving them pure, natural food without preservatives, without chemicals, without fat covering it up to try to sell more food. And by the way, we, this is, we consider this our charity. We take no salary at all. No salary at all. This is all about bringing out the finest food in the world in the most affordable way so that everybody who loves their dog can have a chance to live as long as our dogs are living. And they're living up to 27 and a half years. And I mean, with a quality of life that is superb. I mean, we have no illness here. I tell people the only time our dogs go to a veterinarian is every three years for a $10 rabies update. And this is our charity. Nice. Now we have our new cat food. Last year, we lost two of our cats. One was 31 years old. One was 32 years old. Wow. Unheard of. How did they live that long? They were eating our dog food, believe it or not. Now, we had regular cat food there because cats do need a little more protein than dogs. But right. they, we also had our dog food there. 75% of what they ate was our dog food. Only 25% was, was the cat food. So now we've got our new cat food and our cats are doing amazing. And our dogs are doing them and people are writing to us. I mean, I had a man that, I mean, and we've had this food out now since 2005. So it's been 16 years, but I had somebody write to us uh, last August that said, you know, you don't know me, Mr. Ward. I, um, I, I, my dog has been eating your food now for like, you know, so many years. Uh, and uh, he just died, my German shepherd, but he was 23 years old. And, and I, and, and you think about it, who has ever had a German shepherd live to 23 years of age? Right. I've never and heard that. So yeah. we've got people that are getting the same results. So this is our charity. We're now sold in 2,400 Walmarts across the country, 1,100 targets online with every company from walmart.com, target.com, chewy.com, petco.com, petsmart.com, tractorsupply.com. You can really easily get our food. But the key thing is our food is designed to help dogs live a lot longer, okay, 10 years or more longer with a better quality of life. And, and, and it, this is just something we're very proud of. So I wanted to mention that so that your listeners, if any of them out there have got a dog or a cat, and you want to have that animal an extra five or 10 years longer, 
check out our food, Gentle Giants. It's our website, gentlegiantsdogfood.com. You know, and, and it's our charity, and we just love animals. That's amazing. And I had a question for some of the early dogs that you rescued. You had um, deaf Dalmatians and Great Danes. Is there something about that type of dog that makes them prone to hearing loss? Any dog can have hearing loss. Um, there are breeding is important, you know, um, and sometimes, uh, you know, you have these uh, puppy mills that do indiscriminate breeding. Uh, I will say this with larger breeds, you have to be a little bit more careful to make sure the bloodlines in the past are compatible and stuff like that. They do actually do blood tests and stuff before they breed. And I will tell you this, we've had, you know, a number of wonderful dogs that were deaf, in some cases, deaf or blind, which is a challenge. We have one now that's deaf and blind, which is really a challenge. You know, we love her and uh, she loves us and she knows our place and she gets along with the other dogs. You know, it's just a, it's just a wonderful uh, thing that, and, and these are not insurmountable handicaps. You can have a wonderful life with, with, with saving a life of a dog that, you know, is not perfect and yet they can live a perfectly happy life, you know? Right, right. And um, you and Tracy have both said that Great Danes are perfect for apartments and condos. Why is that? Uh, believe it or not, they're the number one apartment dog in New York City as a Great Dane. And the reason why is that they are not hyper. They're just like a human being. You know, I'll tell you, one of the things that people are shocked when, they, when they'll meet a Great Dane is that, you know, if you meet dogs, a lot of dogs are like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and they... And, then, and they're, they're on to you and they're on to the next and you're, you know, everybody's having fun and they want to go run and play. The great Dane will come over and just, just hang with you and just stand there. And, and it's like, <laughs> my God, this dog is just staying here. He's just letting me pet him. He's not doing anything. And, and, or he'll lay down at my feet and, and, you know, you're expecting them to get up and just go, you know, run around or act like what you think a quote typical dog is. And they're more like a human. They're very, very human-like and i'll tell you something you know like when we we would go to the grocery store and have to leave them for like you know a half an hour or 45 minutes that dog can look at you and make you feel so guilty (laughs) leave me for 45 minutes oh okay oh my god and they're so loving oh you know Uh, and listen i have two children i love my children very much but and i've had fifteen thousand five hundred. Uh, dogs, primarily giant breeds, but some small ones too. And we love all of them, but I will have to say this about the dogs in, in, in 26 years of 15,500 dogs, not one of those dogs ever asked me to buy them a car. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Bert. You've just, you've done tremendous work in this area and and you should definitely be commended for it because it's just an unbelievable service that you're providing for, for dogs. Thank you. You know, I, I, I will like to say this, my wife, Tracy, who, who actually wants to speak to you when we finish our interview, uh, she is like amazing. She is, uh, I mean, you talk about dynamic do and here's what's so funny. My life, I've always been the person with the most energy, you know, and you know, (laughs) people, I'm like, Oh, let's do this. Let's do this. I finally met my match with my wife, Tracy. I tell people, it's a good thing you spoke to me before you spoke to Tracy, because if you (laughs) speak to her before you speak to me, you're going to think I'm a mute that I can't even talk. (laughs) She can talk me around the block. She has so much energy. I've never seen anybody in my whole life that has so much energy and so loving and such a great 
person who loves life and loves animals. And, you know, our new motto is, you know, uh, we have on all of our bags, cat food, dog food, you know, love for our precious pets and our precious planet. And, and so we're on a thing that is where we really are trying to, to make a better world for all of us to live in. And, you know, pets are an important part of it. They bring a lot of comfort to people. And especially, I'm sure, during this whole COVID thing, you're aware that the one, one good thing that came out of that horrible, this horrible thing is that so many pets in shelters have been taken out because people are staying at home and they're yeah. using the pets to keep them company. And these animals right. that otherwise would be put to death are now finding loving homes. So that is, that's good. You know, yeah, um, that's really terrific. That's great. That's great. So Bert, do you have any other uh, projects coming up? Any animation gigs or books or anything you want to promote? Well, uh, Tracy, my wife and I are working on a number of projects. We're actually uh, uh, building our own recording studio and a soundstage, and we're going to be involved in some filmmaking. And uh, I also have a company called Boy Wonder Visual Effects that has done the graphics for 35 feature films, nice. graphics and visual effects. So we've got experience with computers and stuff. And, and you know, we're, we're just living day by day and having fun. And of course, now being very, very careful, uh, you know, you know, we, we have fun every day, you know, and uh, I, I think that everyone in life should try to make the most of, of every minute while you're here. You know, I, there's a famous phrase, live each day as though it were your last and someday you'll be right. <laughs> you know, and, and don't take life seriously you only get out of alive anyhow so the best things in life for free and here i am good for nothing but but uh you know they, i have all these sayings but we, we we live a very happy wonderful fulfilled life and we're trying to do great things and we want to encourage people to do great things we formed a new company called superheroes to the rescue where we are giving out annual awards to people who are doing superhero things for their community and stuff like that. And uh, we, we just want to try to bring out the best in mankind because, you know, we, have, we live in troubled times and uh, we want everybody to do their best to try to uplift all of us and, and make a better world for all of us. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, Bert, can you once again tell our listeners how they can find Gentle Giants? Yes, Gentle Giants dog food and dog and puppy food and Gentle Giants cat and kitten food. Uh, they can go to our website, GentleGiantsDogFood.com, GentleGiantsCatFood.com. We also have a wonderful store at GentleGiantsPetProducts.com. And, uh, and, or they can go into their favorite Target or Walmart and, and usually find our food. We're in most of those stores and online with all the online companies or do a search, Gentle Giants Dog Food or Gentle Giants Cat Food. And the one thing that you're going to get for sure, you're going to get the finest food in the world without us taking any salary to try to make it as affordable as possible so that everybody who loves their pet can have a chance for that dog or cat to live many years longer and healthier. That's amazing. That's so good. Well, thank Absolutely. You. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Bert. It was an honor and a pleasure. And um, we hope you'll come back again sometime. I've got a thousand more questions for you. So, <laughs> yeah. In this case, I believe you. <laughs> I definitely believe you. And uh, as I always like to say on Batman, to the Batmobile, citizens. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, Justin, that, that was amazing, huh? What did you think of Bert Ward? Man, a lot of really spectacular stories and experiences that he's had. And it's so positive. It's infectious. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's still got that amazing energy 
to this day. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So, Justin, where can the folks find you online? Uh, you can find me uh, several places, one of which is the Epic Tales from the Sewers podcast, which is all about uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can find me on the Fantastic podcast, and uh, you can also find me um, as uh, one of the producers of the Amalgamania podcast and entertainment awards. And that is at Amalga, A-M-A-L-G-A-Mania, M-A-N-I-A dot com. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks once again for joining me. And uh, this was just a fabulous episode, and I can't wait for the next time you're on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all the time we have today for Then Is Now Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our interview with the legendary icon, Burt Ward. Go watch some Batman, and please, if you are a dog or cat owner, support Gentle Giants by buying their products. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now Podcast group. Then Is Now Podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out all the great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And then is now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.
Citizens.